Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Morgan Freeman. If you enjoy listening to The Edge, support them by subscribing to The Edge on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can listen through the iHeartRadio app. Get busy listening. This is The Edge. Edge-show.com. Edge lubricates and lathers. Edge-show.com. Listen to the phone side, then listen to the Edge side. Edge-show.com. Phone. Edge. Edge-show.com. This is The Edge. Hi, this is Mark Thompson. Thanks for being here. This is part two of our conversation with Ileana Douglas, the actress, director, producer, writer. Takes us through her world in Hollywood. Why, why are we playing the Mary Tyler Moore theme? <laughs> what was the thing? Oh, I see, because she's a, yeah, she's a woman trying to make it on her own in the big bad world of Hollywood. All right, I get it, I get it. I, I, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. clever. That's what I meant. I mean, how inventive. That's what I, yeah. Uh, Ileana Douglas has done so much. She has been in so many different projects. And if you haven't heard part one of the conversation, you ought to go back and listen to it. This is part two. And we come off Cape Fear and what was going on in that set. She was in a pivotal sequence in that film where we see the horror of this guy, Max Cady. And she was the rape victim and then the murder victim at his hands. It's a brutal scene in Cape Fear. And she talked about the emotional and physical distress that was associated with that scene but we go from that to a project that turned out to also be quite emotional and physically stressful so we'll get into that as well thanks for all the ways you support this podcast thanks for sharing the show with people thanks for turning other people onto it thanks for positive reviews and your subscription and thanks for shopping through amazon through the click through on our website and for anything you leave through our paypal link as always thank you enjoy part two of our conversation with Ileana Douglas. This is The Edge. There are certain moments when you look at actors in Hollywood and you think, boy, that doesn't look so hard, you know, whatever they're doing. And then there are certain moments you go, wow, I could never even consider doing that. Mm. And... That's not the only one in your book and in mm. your life. I didn't realize that the Alive movie, that's the movie where the plane goes down. Mm -hmm. And it's, is it the Andes it goes down? Yeah. Soccer and, team. Yeah. yeah, the soccer team. And they end up having to, to survive, mm -hmm. to eat each other. Yes. Um, and again, you know, I, Frank Marshall was at the premiere of Cape Fear. And I remember he made this joke about how well I cried in Cape Fear. <laughs> he said, he goes, do you think you could cry that well in my movie? I was like, I guess I could, you know. And then I went out and I auditioned for Alive. And I remember, you know, when it was an ensemble movie, it wasn't like it was a big starring part. But it was something about the way that Frank 
talked about the film as being this amazing adventure, living on a mountain, going to the set by helicopter, and it just sounded like something I wanted to experience just to see what I was made of. And that is exactly, again, what the film offered me. It completely broke us down <laughs> mentally and physically, and I saw what I was made of. You know? Yeah, for everybody who was want, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to say for everybody who wants to be a star, like, uh, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, it, it, this just getting to the set sounded like it was super intense because oh. they, they shot it in the mountains. Yeah, in, the, in British Columbia on uh, something called the Delphine Glacier. So we went up, we shot the uh, plane crash part in Vancouver. And again, four weeks doing the same crash. Like really? four weeks of uh, different planes, you know, having mashed potatoes pelted at us, you know, different sort of things. And then we went to the mountain. And I mean, you know, as I write about in the book, I was like Upper West Side, New York, you know, called for my Chinese food in a doorman building. And now I'm living on a mountain, going to the set by helicopter, wearing the same thing for four months, being encouraged, you know, we to not bathe, uh, contractually obligated to lose 10 pounds, you know, not sleeping. Uh, we, you know, completely willingly submitted to the story, I mean, and also getting an opportunity to uh, delve into the spiritual nature of this, because I grew up a Catholic, and I'd gotten way, way away from church and anything like that, but being around these people that had survived this miracle, and I was, you know, looking for some sort of uh, guidance or feeling that there was a purpose to life, and uh, all these people all the Nando Parado and Roberto Canessa who were with us came again. A movie gave me this sense of what I was made of, the strength, you know, because I was the only woman there in the film and some of the incredibly difficult things I had to do, being packed in snow and buried and... and yeah, uh, you talk about that, like buried <laughs> with like a breathing tube or something, so like you oh. can't even, you know, you're packed in this... It's really intense. That's what oh, I was kind of getting at. It was intense. You know, like, again, when you you, you have to film your own death scene and, you, you you know, there comes that moment where they're going to pack you in the snow and you've got this little... We had this little tiny breathing tube and then they're like, okay, and then that snow comes on you and then you can just hear... <laughs> And you're like, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. You can hear your own heart. And then this idea that, you know, they they pull you out and the intense pain from being packed in the snow and you do it. And then they're like, oh, we don't quite have to. We'll have to do it again. <laughs> you know, and they're like, you go back, you know, and Frank going. And, and you thought and, they were kidding, right? Oh, no, I was literally like, my body was involuntary shaking and shake and they're looking at the monitor and he's like ah oh, can, can you do it again and i was like yes you know because you're like you just you you know you're just so in the moment right. and you just want to get you're so invested and we were all so invested in each other you know we were at an age where we really you know we wanted we all wanted to be like we admired John Cassavetes and we were all, you know, wanting to do important things with our with our work. So we, you know, we bonded in that way spiritually, you know. Um, so it was an incredible experience. It was an incredible 
adventure and I learned so much about myself by living on 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 that mountain. I never I never complained after after uh we got, you know, after we got down from the mountain. And did you feel like the final movie justified the the experience? It for me it's two different movies. I I can't you know, it, sometimes it's hard to look at a movie because so much of it is a personal experience and the movie is sometimes a separate uh, entity. Right, it's a different story. Yeah. And, you know, we shot that movie in four months. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, incredibly proud of the film. I think it's got the, uh, in my opinion, the best plane crash sequence I've ever seen in a film. Uh, it's just so incredible. Uh, and they did it with, you know, real planes. And, you know, was, they did an amazing job. And I, I think all the performances of everybody are, are fantastic. But, it's incredibly, uh, and the book is amazing. Everybody should read the book. But the ex- the spiritual experience I had with the real life survivors, subsequently, um, you know, going on tour, and I, I write a lot about the experience I had uh, working with Ethan Hawke, and how much he imparted. Again, that was this beginning of this journey for me, getting re in touch with the dirty hippie that I really was like, I was trying to get away from that. You know, I was like, oh, I hate that, you know, but re remembering through listening to music, he used to listen to like Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And I was like, Oh gosh, this is like horrible reminders of my childhood. But like that re remembering all those, you know, that, that creative ness. And it was like, again, coming out of alive, I directed my first short film and won a lot of awards and, Ethan helped me out on that. And again, just seeing his kind of personality and he had such a truth, you know, of who he was. And I really admired who he was and uh, stole, again, a lot of personality traits, which I've always I've always done. Like if I admire someone in the movies, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to take that trait and, and do that. There's a story in the book about how you were taking this experience of doing Alive was so intense and you were taking it so seriously that you had been starving yourself because mm-hmm. of course the people in the story they're starving to the point that they've got to eat each other so you are starving yourself waiting for your scene and day and day and day is going by <laughs> and she they're still not shooting Eliana Douglas's stuff yeah and you literally I think you have but a I moment lo- of, I lost my mind yeah. over yeah I mean it was we had done um a fast so for three days, we uh, we did a fast where nobody ate anything except for we had a little bit of apple juice uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, again, like literally like a half you know cup or something of apple juice to have some sort of nourishment, which, again, is still more than they did because they went 10 days. So we um, – so after three days, you know, Nando Parado came to us and he said, can you understand why we would eat? people now we're like yeah it's three days i'm going out of my mind but because we're actors and we so got into this feeling it was like we wanted to even go further you know so you become like no i maybe i can go four days without eating maybe i can go five days without eating and so maybe i I can just gnaw on (laughs) my fellow cast member for a bit so you know we were like it'll be good for my acting you know we were just like you know really really living it but the problem was in shooting on a mountain that the you know our 
our call sheet was 10 pages long and we never could complete a scene. So it was like in sunny conditions to be completed, you know, because you'd literally be in the middle of a scene and all of a sudden it would start snowing and they'd be like, uh, okay, scene 79 is up, you know, (laughs) and you'd run back to the tent and you'd adjust whatever, you know, facial disfigurement you had or whatever. And then you go back and you'd start shooting that. So, there was a scene that literally was like the curse of the movie. And it's the scene with Vincent Spano where he's saying, how can you play with our lives? If anybody wants to watch it, you're going to see, watch the scene and see how the the sun dramatically changes (laughs) from shot to shot. Because this scene, which involved every single cast member after they've been there and somebody has stolen chocolate and they have to. And so you need reaction shots. We had so many problems shooting the scene. At one point we were shooting the scene and Vinny Spano actually fainted uh, because we're up 12,000 feet on a mountain and none of us are eating. He actually fainted, fell on his back, hurt his back. That became like everything about this scene was a problem. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But they needed a shot of, of me during this scene and they never got it. And so I wanted to be starving for this scene. And it was on the call sheet like every day like that we were going to complete this scene. And so we're getting sort of towards the end of the movie now. I was like, Frank, are we going to are we going to do my scene today? Because I, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm starving. I'm ready to eat. <laughs> yeah, because I want to eat. And I didn't. We never. You know, we, it was like he's he kept promising me we're going to get to it, and I had literally stopped eating by that point, and I was just experiencing this just incredible fatigue. And I remember like not eating lunch because I thought we were going to do the scene, and then the sun went down. And he just looked at me and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to get, we'll get to it tomorrow. And I said, that is it. I have had it. And I started walking, except that I was on a mountain. Uh, Ileana is, is, wait a minute, where's Ileana? Yeah, where's Ileana going? You know, you have the ADs going, where's, where's Ileana going? You know, and I'm, I'm like marching in the snow. <laughs> I don't know where I thought it was going because we were on a mountain, but the next thing I know, there's a snowmobile like trailing me with Bruce Cohen, now famous producer. You know, he's like, Leon, do you want to do you want to stop walking now? Would you like to stop walking? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you know, and I I stop it. So at that point, they get fret. You know, it becomes this thing where they bring a they find a half a potato for me to eat, <laughs> and I I don't want to eat that potato, you know, and it became this really interesting life moment because it was like there was that food there and the director was holding it out to me. And I was like, oh, if I eat this food, it's like admitting that I'm wrong. And that I, and I took the potato and I put it in my mouth and it's like finally some blood sugar, you know, Bruce Cohen was like, she hasn't eaten in like five days. So, you know, and I collapsed in Frank's arms and I was crying, you know, and it was like just this incredible feeling of like, 
all of life's problems, like from being an angry teenager to a troubled adult, like in, for some reason, for whatever reason, that's what I needed at that moment. I just needed to give up and admit that I was wrong and have the, the director, you know, hold me in that way. And that's so beyond what the film is, there were those moments that changed my life forever. Yeah, you almost had a sense that your experiences doing that movie surpassed any kind of result that the film actually ended up with. Yeah, because I said we, we became this group of huggers, you know, a, it was okay to cry. It was okay to be vulnerable. I always, like, I thought I had to be that snappy little kid, you know, and it was it was okay. You could be wrong. You could be vulnerable. People were going to cover for you, like. You could take the potato, you know, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And that's what I learned from, you know, from that movie, trust and vulnerability. You end up again in your life, which is this life that has sort of been graced by these things, but also been plagued by stuff early. But, you know, you've now we've seen you've pulled it out of a dive and you're kind of on a really cool track. Yeah. You end up in a situation where you meet Roddy McDowell. I know you talk about that in the book. And he'd been this figure again in your mind. Because it also led to all this kind of rich world that you end up in. Well, again, where where I get this phone call, you know, Roddy McDowell wants to meet you and photograph you for his book. And I'm like, you mean like the books like I have in my bookcase of Montgomery <laughs> Cliff and Elizabeth Taylor? Like I'm going to be in one, you know. So I'm all excited about, you know, meeting him. And I have this audition for To Die For, and I'm all excited because obviously I'll be coming back from the audition telling him that I'm in the film and all this kind of stuff. But of course, the audition doesn't go the way I think it should go. And so by the time I meet, you know, Roddy, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm convinced I'm not going to be in the movie and crying and everything. And he starts taking my picture. I'm like, this is not what I want. I don't want her to be. And he says to me at the time, he goes, you're going to hate these pictures, but years from now you'll love them. And he's right. They're, Cause they're, it just captures a moment in time. And uh, we become friends. He becomes sort of like my Uncle Roddy. And uh, he's the one who says, uh, you're going to meet a lot of interesting people in your life. I'm one of them. And you have to start <laughs> writing about it. And, and because he kept journals and scrapbooks his whole life. And so from that moment on, I started journaling, keeping a journal of, of everything, you know, everything that I did because of, because of him. And so again, luckily with me in the book, I was able to go back and actually, which was terrifying, like to go back and read some of these passages of what was, you know, happening at the, at the time, but that way they're accurate. But geez, the people you come across, it's unreal. I, first of all, because we're on Roddy McDowell, he was in Planet of the Apes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so he had a Cornelius was that yes which is now at the if anyone wants to see it's now at the motion picture home in uh I think it's Woodland Hills a statue of Cornelius yes in his garden it was just the, I think Dana Gould owns his house now I think he yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if he still does but yes but Dana, that, that house yes. that you were at yes okay. that was a beautiful house and you say that you were at dinners and Steve Martin mm -hmm. is next to Gore Vidal, mm -hmm. Maureen O'Hara. Mm -hmm. Hard to know whether to eat your peas or just stare at Gregory Peck and try not to scream. <laughs> I mean, I got that. I mean, wow. Yeah. What a, what a world you're in. Yeah. 
talking to Gregory Peck, and he's talking about Jennifer Jones and Duel in the Sun. You know, he's like, everybody on set wanted her. I was like, is, wait, there's four people hearing this? Greg, you know, like, but sometimes I do have that moment. I was like, why is nobody hearing? Like, look, did Gregory Peck just talk to me about Jennifer Jones? Like, is, you know, Tuesday Weld, you know, it's insane. Do you feel when you're in those situations, the need to hold your own sort of with all those people? Or do you just sit back and let those stories or references or conversations wash over you? In other words, what part of a conversation do you feel compelled to participate in and how do you with people like that? I feel as if I'm uh, lucky enough to be uh, in the room, in the present. So I, I start out as an observer, you know, I'm like, wow, Tuesday Weld. And then, you know, I'm like, find the correct moment to talk about the loved one. <laughs> and then my secondary is like somehow find maybe a point of reference to talk to them about uh, a film that they're in because I somehow, I don't know, as I said, it's my own thing. Like I think of myself as a rememberer. So I feel as if when I meet someone, I'd like to somehow – um, it's not so much that I want to meet them and take their picture and brag about meeting them, but I feel as if there's a part of me, like it's pieces of a puzzle and I'm meeting them and maybe they're going to offer me some interesting insight about a time or a, a book that I read, or I once read that, you know, this, ha is that true? Or, but the interesting thing is these people seem to gravitate towards me anyway. Like I'm, I'm always the one, like I'm never, <laughs> trying to be i'm just trying to be there and be anonymous you but know? you also seem like you're generous and open you know and i think you know i think that draws people when you're someone who is open especially to showbiz people yeah you know, if they showbiz people sense when people are going to be interested in them you know I, yeah they seem to have a you know a, a sense like that i i don't have any uh motives right you know, um, that's I, I've just been lucky in that in that sense. And sometimes I do feel that it's been a responsibility where they've told me things and I'm like, are they telling me this? Because they want me to somehow remember this and recollect it and pass it on like it does. It feels that way somehow. But that could just be my own ego. <laughs> you... But people like the truth. I mean, people like to have. I mean, I've, I'm a documentarian. I've made a couple of docs, and and people like to tell their story, and they, I, I, and they I like agree. to tell it to someone who doesn't have an agenda that's yeah. judging them. And if you yeah. can, and if you can put them in that situation, yeah, they will open up. I, I mean, I agree. There's a there's another section in the book where I I talk about I I befriended. Um, I, I mean, I met him at a party, John Frankenheimer. You know, um, and. He just gravitated. You know, I said, geez, I got to ask you about, we were talking about the movie, you know, uh, the movie Seconds. He's a director um, and, a, and was known as, and I learned this from your book, like kind of a tougher director on the set, right? Oh, yeah, yeah very. Uh, but in, I met him, I was working, he was editing a movie in the, when I was doing Freaks and Geeks in the same, uh, in the same building. So I mm -hmm. got to ride elevators with him. And he seemed in person a very sort of warm and open dude, but I've heard yeah. tales of him on set that. He was mellow in the elevator, but he's tough yeah. on the set. Yeah. He cast, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, he cast uh, Jessica Walter in the, the car racing movie with James Garner. I suddenly can't think of what it's mm -hmm. called. People are out there screaming. 
But anyway, he cast her in the film, and then she didn't tell him she was engaged. And then when she showed up, she was married. So he was furious because the only reason he put her in the film right. was because he wanted to have a relationship with her. Yep. So then she was pretty. Then he was mean to her throughout the rest of the the filming. So that was you know. But we um, we struck up a conversation and we just got to be talking. And then you know I don't know. He invite started inviting me to screenings of his films just to you know so i would go and i'd offer comments and he took my comments seriously and then you know as i was going on my directing career i you know i said could i ever like take you to lunch i'd love to continue this conversation and i remember we went to lunch at this italian restaurant and he said eliana you're gonna get a lot more out of this than i am so you're gonna be picking up the check (laughs) (laughs) and i again i'm like Okay, you know, but yet he proceeded to tell me so much about himself, you know, so I don't know, I guess that's, you know, I I just try to be the rememberer and at the right time, tell these stories, not in a, hopefully not in a gossipy way, in a way that that puts them into historical context. Did your... um... How does this segue into reality television? And the, you, you do you, you have a very as you tell these stories, you could it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you're very funny and you've got mm. this funny take on things. The book mm. is funny, even as you take us through a lot of these stories. And your funny seems to come to life in the world of reality slash comedy television. Doing a television show at an IKEA, how that happened and how it ended up, it was like really an event. I started doing, um, I, I moved to Los Angeles and uh, I got, again, sounds like a publicist made it up, but I was at a party. I was at like one of, for those people in Hollywood, one of the greatest things you can do in your life is not to win an Academy Award. It's to be invited to Carrie Fisher's party, a birthday party in like the 90s. She and Penny Marshall used to have these famous birthday parties every year. And, there and how was... did you end up getting involved? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I, I think possibly I'm going to credit Bruce Cohen, who's a good friend of theirs from Alive. I don't quite know, but somehow I made it. And there at a party, uh, if you could reach out your arm and see and touch Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Harrison Ford, I mean, you name it. it you know, George Lucas, like everywhere, was like, yes, this is why I got into show business. Why was Carrie Fisher's and Penny Marshall's party populated by all those people? I That I don't know. I just know that it became that. And then Dennis Hopper's house also would, you know, that's what you, you know, I in the period of, uh, of Hollywood history, I mean, I think that, you know, people would... You know, famous people would have parties and where people would let their hair down. And those were the kind of parties you wanted to go to. Sure. Whether it was in the Malibu colony or, 
you know, J- Jack Warner or, you know, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd want to go to someone's, you know, you'd want to go to the Warners on Sunday and play croquet and have, you know, play tennis. So I think that there was always these, and I don't know exactly how it started, but I, I, you know, I knew that that's basically like a golden ticket. You know, you have arrived if you're being invited to a party at, you know, at their, at their house. And again, I was, I was there and that's how I met Gary Shandling. And I was talking to Gary Shandling and he talked about, uh, and I just, I had a movie out uh, called Grace of My Heart and he was a big fan of Grace of My Heart. And I'd been again asking my agent repeatedly about being on the Larry Sanders show. It was my favorite show. It's still, I still think it's the perfect combination of comedy and pathos, which is my sweet spot for comedy. But I was talking to him and he was asking me about being on the show, like being his girlfriend and being his, the last girlfriend on the show. It was going to be me. And would I be possibly interested in that? And again, I had that like, is this a, this is a joke, right? This can't be just like a holiday. This is what happens in Hollywood. You know, you go to parties and people, are, they say, you're going to be on my show, you know? And so I, we had this lovely conversation. He was talking about grace in my heart. And then like, I remember telling my agent, I was like, I met Gary Shandling. And he was like, we're in Hollywood. Like you're at a party and people say things. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I thought. So I completely forgot about it until the casting person, Mark Hirschfeld called me and he was like, Gary Shandling is trying to get a hold of you. They you know, wants you to be on the show. And so we talked and again, this became, this was a life changing moment uh, in that Gary said to come to his office and he said, I just want to sit and talk with you. I just want to hear every funny thing that ever happened to you. And so I started telling him uh, stories about where I grew up and my crazy hippie childhood and not having television and what, and they were just, you know, Judd Apatow was the director and we were just writing it all down. And I had no idea. I started to, you know, and after working on the show, it was like, he said, you know, you should write like you're a writer, you're a natural writer. And we're like, really? I thought I was just like a jokester, like who, you know, I always imagined myself as like that person who never really succeeds, but is always on a film set because people like her and they, you know, they think she's funny. Like I'm like Danny Simon, you know, like Neil Simon <laughs> is the successful one, but everybody goes, but the true genius, like haven't you always heard? It's like, right. the true Really, Danny Simon is a true genius. It was like, is there any evidence of that? No, there's lots of evidence that right. Neil Simon is the genius. But everyone would say, well, you know, Danny Simon. Was right. Even you though know. he didn't write those 30 plays. Right. And- <laughs> so I always imagine, like, I was like, that's, I'm just thrilled to be here and occasionally get off something, a good joke that people laugh about. So when he started to say, like, no, you should write and you should be a writer, it, it, I led me into uh, doing a, I, I sold a, you know, I tried to sell a couple pilots. I had like a deal with CBS, didn't really go anywhere. Then I got another deal with, um, uh, with Oxygen and New Line. And that was this uh, Ileana Rama show in which I, I used to go to this place, uh, the supermarket that was in Bel Air called, I think it's like, it's up on Roscomere. And you would see famous people there. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea for a 
show, you know, like people, actors that can't get work. It's like the supermarket of the stars. And so that was the show I sold. And even though we had um, uh, Jeff Goldblum in it and Justine Bateman and Greg Proops and John Hurd and all these people, uh, they they turned it down. And again, I was like, well, I guess I'm not a writer. I guess Gary Shandling is wrong. And I put, and I, you know, and lo and behold, Brian De Palma comes to L.A. and uh, invite him over for, you know, we have dinner and uh, he's got, he wants to see my pilot and I'm, I'm mortified. Now, again, this isn't just, I knew Brian obviously through Marty and they had watched me. Uh, I did many, directed many short films that, that they had all seen and been at Lincoln Center and Sundance and Toronto Film Festival and stuff. So it wasn't like out of the blue. Yeah, they but, knew you were someone, a, a director of competence. Exactly. But I was always like, you know, would make a short or make a documentary, but never did a feature. And so this TV show for me represented all, you know, here I'm, I've written it, I've directed it, I'm the producer, and it's a big failure. You know, I don't get it. I got all these famous people to be in it. I thought it was good, but they've said, no, it's bad, it's wrong, it's not going to be on television. And Brian sees it, and I literally hid in the other room because I was just waiting for the, like, him to tell me like you are not a director and he said there's something to this you can't you can't give it up and and again it sounds like I'm making this up but I write about it in the book I was like well if Brian De Palma who I really respect who did Dress to Kill and all these amazing movies I'm nothing but if Brian De Palma is saying don't give up I can't let Brian De Palma down <laughs> and, and that's my coping mes- mechanism of I believe so much in movies and movie stars that I was like Brian De Palma says it's good I know it's awful but Brian De Palma is a talented filmmaker and he says to stick with it and he said he should put it on the internet you know and I put it on YouTube and that's how it these executives from Ikea uh, saw it. And the next thing I know, I was meeting with a, with Ikea executives to talk about originally doing interstitials. But the more we chatted, the more I would talk, I talked about this failed pilot I did. And I said, you know, I feel like we could just take that concept and put it in an Ikea. Cause basically it's, it's me. It's, you know, this version of, of me. And so... It's better in an Ikea store, really, than yeah, even in the supermarket. So much so much better. It opened it up because, you know, that we had the whole fish out of water, the whole Swedishness of everything, the whole idea that you could get lost in an Ikea and have a musical number. And again, I, it's another whole chapter devoted this to this me literally stumbling towards success of just I'm in an Ikea and again I'm just happy to be shooting my thing at Ikea and lo and behold by I talked about the experience of I wrote the first script for them and I like take out my pen and I get the first note of like well we actually don't sell ice cream it's frozen yogurt so I was like oh geez I'm so sorry okay ice cream what's next and then he said no that's it good stuff (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, is this a, does he not know? Like, you're supposed to, you're supposed to rip their heart out and stomp yeah. on it. Reams of notes. Tell them a lo- there is such a loser, and then give them the script back. But so I was like, oh, yeah. So we, so through through this experience of literally having to become a writer producer with you know with with no notes with nobody to please. 
uh, I developed into that is, you know, working on the show for five years was was turned me into a, you know, writer, producer, director, gave me all. And so the metaphor of the show, it's called Easy to Assemble. And the whole premise was uh, somebody who needs to put it's the, you know, needs to put themselves together by by, you know, deconstructing that their whole life you put yourself back together and lo and behold, as I'm doing the show, I was like, wow, you, it is by the end of the show, I discovered who I was, what my strengths were, what my comedy voice was. So I just owe them an incredible, uh, you know, debt of gratitude. Yeah, it worked to, it worked to transform you in a sense. To... I think it did. It got me back to who I was. It was like, I moved away from jokes I started watching more films. I started going deeper. I started, you know, which is the true essence of anyone who's a writer. It sounds like a cliche, but you have to find your voice. You, it can't just be jokes, you know, after a while because they, you have to understand where they come from, I think, in order to get beyond just joke writing. As a stand-up, I've been a stand-up for almost 30 years, and it's like, you know, every stand-up I know, it's like, you at some point during your career, you realize that your goal is to get to being yourself on stage. Yeah. But you go through this whole phase of writing jokes that the yeah. audience will laugh at, but it's not necessarily what you want to say because you don't have that mastery yet. Yeah. But there comes a point where you go, oh, okay, the real goal is to be me on stage, you know, an yeah. extension of me on stage. Yes. But you have to learn that, you know. It's tough, too. I mean, in the third season, which was called Finding North, I symbolically killed Ileana. I drowned her. I like the person and the, the woman that reemerged from the lake was, you know, it, it's like it was a journey of, you know, I win uh, co-worker of the year and I'm. And incidentally, Fred Willard as the fictional head of Ikea is just brilliant. We had so many amazing people. You have incredible people running through the show. That were in the show, from Jane Lynch to Ed Bagley as my ghost who gives me, you know, advice. Kate McCucci, Kevin Pollack, I mean, on and on and on. Keanu Reeves, Tim Weber. Well, you have the, and you have the obsession with Albert Brooks that I have. I mean, I, and for you, that was... Likewise. Uh, yeah, and, and Josh as well. Yeah, he's he's it for me. I mean, right. there's no, you know, there's there's no, again, that mixture of that uncomfortable uh, comedy is, is just, that's the sweet spot for me. You know, that human relationships, the fragility, the like, it was right here, and then somehow... Yeah. It, it just fell apart, and I, uh, his examination of that, and just his whole... His, his, he's a guy who's always known his voice. Yeah, I think so. And again, just the, the, the nostalgic uh, tie of listening to his albums, you know, and just... I used to, on my birthday, watch and make my girlfriend watch the uh, Lost in America or Speaking Modern Romance, one or yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah. Those two, uh, and yeah. it was a must viewing. I just watched know. Modern Romance like a week oh, ago. Oh, it's the great. Yeah. I mean, when the guy goes, yeah, you saved the picture. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I use it. I, I use that, that I still use it to this day. When after, in an edit of any kind, of, I have to tell them, though, what the reference is because they don't right. know what it is. Oh, it's um, the, I mean. Save the picture. It's yeah. the yeah. It's the great. He's the great. He's us. You know. Yeah. He's like the sweeter version of George Costanza in a way. You know. Right. I think because yeah. he's us. He's the person who like he just. It's like it's just gonna be out of reach every time. 
you know, and then but I think of somebody, bro, you know, like, oh, my God, Charles Grodin in real life when he kills the horse. And, yeah. But it's cool that he eventually runs through your life. You know? Oh, of course. He yeah, has to uh... because, you know, my life wouldn't be a movie unless as I'm getting an opportunity to shoot my show and I'm in the middle of fighting with a sound guy who's holding me up because he wants like $700 to come back the next day. Um, and my friend. Danny Farrington is like, idea, you're someone behind you. I think you're going to want to meet him. And I'm like, Danny, I'm in the middle of something. Please, I'm an important producer. Please. You know, and he's like, all right, well, I think you're really going to want to meet him, though. You know, and, and it turns out it's like I sit down. I'm like, who's this person you want me to meet? I'm like, you know, some obscure songwriter. Like, who is it? And he's like, you know, and then the doors open of the supermarket. And out walks Albert Brooks holding an Arizona iced tea. And barbecued ribs and proceeds to like, he's like, can I take this spot? And he sits down at the picnic table and like, I just was like, I was speechless. I was like, okay, even for me, <laughs> you are making this up, right, Eliana? You're making this up. Like that Albert Brooks is going to sit down and like 45 minutes of unadulterated, you know, and again, to give people context. 15 minutes on Johnny Carson, 45 minutes of Albert Brooks, like, oh, what kind of equipment are you using? And that's interesting. And like, you know, just trying to be in the presence of, you know, talking to him and being cool. And then afterwards, like I would only drink Arizona iced tea, the the tea of geniuses, you know, (laughs) clearly. That's great. So it just was like, again, just a, this incredible experience that you, you're you on the right path. And even if you're not, at least you're getting to meet all the people that are that you've enjoyed. Gene Wilder walked through a scene, I know. He's in the show. Yeah. And in fact, again, with my executives, they, they made me, I'm like, I, while we're shooting the show, which again, the only part, tough part of selling the show was having them believe that celebrities would work in a supermarket. I was like, again, this is currently happening. You know, like you can't, there's no work. There's only reality TV. That was the whole premise of the show. But, uh, and so while we're shooting the first time Albert Brooks comes and while we're shooting the pilot, Oh, gee, we've got to hold up because Gene Wilder is shopping. Gene Wilder in the blue members only jacket, you know, and actually like, again, sort of peaks like, Oh, what are you shooting? And I was like, we're shooting a thing. And, you know, and he's, and does like says scoozy. I remember that was like, (laughs) that is so Gene Wilder for him to say scoozy. And I said, listen, would you mind just like just crossing the frame, you know, so I can say I work with Gene Wilder. Oh my goodness, he does. And then later on, I'm like bragging to the executives, like, isn't this incredible? It's just like the premise of the show. And they're like, well, we're not going to be able to put him in the show, you know, of course, because we would uh, have to alert Screen Actors Guild. And and I was like, even that you'd make a downer out of like seeing Gene Wilder, (laughs) having Gene Wilder be in the show. And so, like, I remember it was, you know, just top secret, me and the editor having to kind of hide the fact that like like Gene Wilder was in there, but we put him in there. He's in there. He crossed, he crossed the credits. 
Um, you're at TCM and have a show at TCM, right? Yes. Turner um, Classic Movies. Turner Classic TV. Movies. And the show is called Trailblazing Women. It airs every October. It's a three-year initiative with women in film. And last year we concentrated, every year we t- we concentrate on an uh, area of uh, female filmmakers. Last year it was directors going back to 1896 up until the present, Catherine Bigelow. This year we're doing... Um, Actresses who made a difference, so it's social and historical contributions of actresses, so, uh, some that are obvious, like Shirley Temple and um, other Jane Alexander, who ran the National Endowment of the Arts, and Jane Fonda. Some that I think are going to be surprising, like Myrna Loy, who gave up her career to work in the Red Cross and was uh, instrumental in the UNESCO, which was a... Um, anti-discrimination in housing and it, there's going to be a lot of revelations. You Hedy Hattie Lamar in there? We, of course we have Hattie Lamar who invented um, this uh, which became the basis of cell phone technology right. and Marlena Dietrich who was trying to hatch a plan to kill Adolf Hitler which I think a lot of people don't know about wow. but um, we've got over again 40 actresses we cover the blacklist talking to Lee Grant Bette Midler talks about because we have different co-hosts so Jane Fonda covers uh, activists, uh, Bette Midler talking about creating your own destiny. And so we talk about people like Marilyn Monroe and Mae West and all these people that affected social change that use their fame as a as a platform really to change the fabric of America. And the way we draw that together today in an entertaining way is to say, wow, if we keep marginalizing actresses, and, and I would say actors too, kind of rolling our heads and kind of making fun of them a little bit, we, um, we lose all these great social contributions because they it used to be that they we would use actors as a as a platform for you know america the the ideals that jimmy stewart represented in films translated to his off-screen life and i kind of like that you know um but i i feel like we've gotten away a little bit from that also act you know actresses just aren't given enough time to create a body of work like a jane fonda to become an activist so we discuss all all of that in the in terms of the the present and what who are our next role models going to be and it's a it's a fascinating series I'm really proud of it. We touch on that occasionally on this show when we talk about activism and I know I've specifically said I am always blown away when people criticize actors and people who've actually made a difference in the culture that is to say you know you talk about the impression that hollywood's created through movies and television these are the Mm. impressions that actually form the culture they actually form our experience and yet we criticize these actors when they speak up politically or something Mm. which to me is insane they should use the platform for their political Mm -hmm. speech to whatever degree they're comfortable doing it and in this case that they do so much more so Mm -hmm. uh, yeah we've made that point on this show before yeah Um, i mean fame doesn't have inherent value (laughs) it's only what you apply to it exactly but in in you you know because you start to you when you think of the past if you think of a robert redford or you know certain liberal causes and nature conservation and you put it all together you know that's that's important for for our society but i feel like again we're it's hard to imagine an actor running the National Endowment of the Arts currently. 
So uh, that's that's not good. It's hard to imagine that you know Shirley Temple was the ambassador to Prague. Like I can't I can't think of an actress currently where like you know we're going to put them in charge. People would go no. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, Angelina Jolie was the real thing in her UNICEF work. She yes. knew her shit. Yeah, um, very impressive. Mm-hmm. And yet you're right. Somehow we'd go well. Angelina Jolie can't. Why? Why can't Angelina Jolie actually do something of real substance and of real difference in the world? Yeah, I mean, again, these are the things that we that we talk about, and the you know, some there has been this breakdown of entertainment and what entertainers did. You know, Betty Davis uh, helped co-found the you know the Hollywood Canteen with with John Garfield. You know, they were traditionally using their fame for a platform and we're not allowed really to do that anymore. Um, just, you know, I think that there are lots of actors that, that have personal charities that maybe they talk about, but it, it feels as if, Oh, they have got their own agenda or they're liberal or they're too Republican or something like that. Well, and in this world though, it's, I mean, it is, if, if you are cursed with, you know, any sort of overriding insecurity to go out on a limb in this, in this Twitter world mm-hmm. um, where you are just, you're going to get hammered no mm-hmm. matter what stand you're taking. There's going to be people opposing you who are going to hammer you in a mean and horrible way. And mm-hmm. I think if, unless you have that true sense of conviction about what you're talking about, I think people do shy, you know, people also you have to have gun a, shy now. You, you know? have to have enough momentum in your career or feelings about your career and career life that you're not going to be affected by that. Because from a marketing perspective, the marketing people would say, no, 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 no. I, I don't want you taking a political stand. I don't want you to go mm-hmm. to that rally. I don't want you, right. you know, we need to take care of you. Agents and managers might say the same. But thing. I don't know that it can be worse than the studio system, you know, in terms of controlling what actors were saying yeah, publicly. Yeah, they were doing it back then. Yeah. The I think they were. I mean, you know, Betty Davis went around to every uh, studio and got cooperation to build the Hollywood Canteen. And so there was, you know, there was this social platform. And I, again, you, you find that in today's uh, current state of movies, you, you'd think that that was crazy or ridiculous or you wouldn't take their phone call, you know, so... It's uh, I just think that all I think that I think that all entertainers, the reason you entertain is, you know, to have a social platform or comedians, you know, you have something to say and uh, you're commenting on society. And I think that, you know, it's it's a shame that we're that we're not using actors more to be ambassadors, you know, as representatives. Ileana Douglas's book is called I Blame Dennis Hopper and Other Stories from a Life Lived in and Out of the Movies. It is funny. I mean, laugh out loud funny in a couple of spots. And then it just takes you through these, this world. I mean, your life has been amazing with all of these people and places and experiences. It's insane. I had no idea. I mean, I knew that you were somebody, mm-hmm. but I had no idea of who you were really with mm-hmm. a, with this background and all the other somebodies that you've come in contact with. So I recommend the book. Thank you for spending time with us. It's been terrific to have oh, you here. Thank Eliana you. Douglas. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thank a you. Pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Oh, okay. Let me do, okay, yeah. Let me just, yeah. It's just something. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to thank you for all the ways that you support my friends on the Edge podcast. And if you haven't already, why don't you show your support and subscribe? 
What's the matter with you? Go to Edge Show. Oh, shit, it's Edge Dash. What the, what's with the dash, stupid? All right, let me... I want to thank you for all the ways that you support my friends on the Edge podcast. To show your support and leave something on their website, edge-show.com. Stupid. Why is that dash? Edge-show.com. Edge-show.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.